This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This September, Erickson Immigration Group hosted their Women in Law event, which highlights the contributions and stories of pivotal women who work in immigration law. This event was led by Erickson Immigration Group's partner, Heba Amber. And in this conversation, policy and advocacy strategist Monica Slonky joins Hiba to share her story. The two address navigating the legal industry as a woman of color, how Monica's father arriving in the U.S. as a refugee has shaped her view and empathy towards what immigration can bring, the insights she gained working on the subcommittee of immigration and border security during the Trump administration, and in conclusion, what lessons she passes down to young women aspiring to become lawyers. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Monica is a shining example of resiliency and excellence within the world of immigration law. It was a pleasure to have her on. So you're from Louisiana Mm -hmm. and what a lot of people don't know is the really unique and just inspiring story about how your family made it to Louisiana in the first place. So I'd love to start by having you tell us a little bit about like your family, the background, the story, and like the chain of events that led you um, to Louisiana. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. As, um, as Hiba mentioned, I'm, um, I'm born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I'm a southerner, which I think everyone's, the first question is always, where's your accent? And the answer to that is it comes out when I drink. So if you want to hear my southern accent, you got to give me a drink. Um, So my, my um, grandparents are originally, and I have to go back to grandparents because it's a little bit complicated. So my grandparents are actually originally from India. Um, and um, around the time of partition, around the time of Indian independence, there was a huge migration of people of Indian origin from India to East Africa. Um, and in part because what happened was the British owned, you know, they owned India, they owned East Africa, they owned, you know, the whole world. And wherever there were, wherever I joke that wherever there are Brits, there are also people of Indian origin because the Brits took labor. Um, so there had been a labor, labor migration uh, from India to East Africa for a long time, but around the time of the partition, there was a huge migration of people who actually moved permanently um, to East Africa. So my family um, was settled in Uganda. And it actually, you know, it's interesting, it's like entire villages just up and, and implanted, implanted themselves in, into Uganda and sort of had very similar insular lifestyles, which is also really fascinating. And then so my parents were raised in Uganda. I spoke Swahili. And um, in 1972, um, there was a dictator named Idi Amin, Africa for Africans. And he expelled all the people of Indian origin um, from Uganda. And my parents, most of my family actually still had British protected status from India as colonized people. So that's really interesting. So most of my family went to England and 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 went to refugee camps there. My father was a Ugandan citizen um, and he was stripped of his citizenship and sent to a refugee camp um, and actually in Naples, Italy, which was not a bad place to go if you're in a refugee camp. Um, and then um, the US agreed to take, I think like a hundred or 200 people. Um, and so my father was one of the people who was resettled um, to the United States from Uganda. So he entered as a refugee in 1972. And he was resettled in New Orleans um, because um, 
at the time prior to it was prior to my the Ugandan refugee crisis almost all refugee resettlement had been done by religious organizations. So the Catholics would reset, reset the Catholics, the Jews would resettle the Jews. And so when the Ugandan refugee situation happened, it was the first time that you had like mostly Hindus and Muslims. Um, and so there wasn't an established Hindu and Muslim community in the United States to receive them. So the refugee resettlement organization stepped up and um, highest, my, my father was actually resettled by highest, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And it was the first time that they sort of had to make the decision, like we are not just gonna resettle Jews, but that we are gonna resettle people. And so they resettled my father in New Orleans. Um, he was sponsored by a local synagogue in New Orleans. And that's how he was, we ended up in Louisiana. Well, that's actually, I think, um, so the, the thing that really fascinates me about that story is you have someone of South Asian descent, like, you know, basically somebody who's Indian, who is, leaving their home country post colonization, you know, of another, I guess, empire, um, resettled in Africa, like an entirely different continent, and then um, becomes a refugee a second time around, so to speak. Um, and then ultimately when your father does make it to the United States, it's a, a Jewish religious organization that really kind of like comes to his rescue. Um, so in a way, it's, you know, it's, it's I, as traumatizing as it is, there's definitely like an, an element of just like, you know, humanitarianism, you know, like how people really truly kind of come to the aid of people. So that was something that I found really touching. Um, so if you don't mind me asking, um, it, what, was your father married, not married? I mean, how, how did this impact your mom? Yeah, so she was, they were married at the time. We, they didn't have any kids. My brother and I weren't born. Um, and my mom tells a story much better than I can, where she was interviewed by the Ugandans and they said, well, um, weren't you married? Like I saw a man in your house and she likes to joke because we're very traditional and very conservative. And she's joked, she's like, no, that was my boyfriend. He ran away, which <laughs> is always just really funny coming from my mom. Um, and so, yeah, she lied and said she wasn't married in order so she could go because they knew that her family were going to England because they were they had the British colonized status. And if she said she was married to my father, I mean, like you have to understand like they, they had no idea where he was gonna go. Like when when he got on that off that plane and when they separated, like they had no idea. Like if what they would even see each other again. No, they had wow. no idea. They had no idea where he was going. They had no idea how because my dad was stateless, right? because wow. he didn't, he couldn't, India wouldn't even have taken him because um, he didn't, he was a Ugandan citizen. Um, and so it was, yeah, I mean, it was very, um, you know, you, you just sort of have to hope for the best. Um, but, but I do want to say that one thing that you, you know, you talked about like sort of the migration of people. And I will say that um, you know, I, I was obsessed with my father's story as a child, particularly Idi Amin, and the idea that you could expel a person because of the color of their skin was always something that as even as a very, very young child was always so striking in my mind. I would say, like, what would you say if you saw Idi Amin? And my father would say, I always say thank you, because what you did allowed me to come to this country. And I was able to achieve what I was with everything in the United States. And so that's the sort of patriotism um, that 
um, people, particularly I would say in the refugee community, the refugee, resettled refugees, people who have so, so much gratitude to this country for taking them in and allowing them to prosper. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if people haven't interact with the refugee community. I don't know if, if, if people know those stories. There's really sort of deep sense of patriotism that exists in those communities. So that's actually really important because, you know, um, that's an example of how your father would respond when you would ask him a pointed question. But then looking back on your childhood, were there other examples of how just their general experience and everything that they had gone through shaped your childhood and shaped the lessons that they taught you? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, put your ha- head down, work as hard as you can. <laughs> work harder than everybody else and you'll be successful. I mean, I think that's a, a sort of a universal thing with lots of immigrants. immigrants. But again, like particularly because, because neither one of my parents, my mom or my dad had a formal education or much of a formal education, um, hard work was, was the key to success. Right. Um, and that was definitely very, and and I think that my father appreciated the fact that he could succeed with hard work. Um, that was something that he, you know, appreciated about the country, but that was definitely the lesson that he imparted on me. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you say you were on the front lines? I know you said that that was a very stressful period, but I don't want to like, like what was really going on? Yeah, so I was counsel for the House Judiciary Committee on the Immigration Subcommittee. And at the time, um, there was a moment of transition. We had lost the, I believe, I think we had lost the Senate at that point. Everything's a bit of a blur. But it ended up being that, you know, I was the immigration counsel who was sort of leading the charge when all of the members were, you know, going to the airports and they were trying to figure out what was happening. And I was, um, that whole weekend of the Muslim ban, I didn't change out of my pajamas. I was like literally glued to my sofa the entire time fielding calls and trying to figure out what was happening, <clears throat> calling CBP, trying to issue statements. We published a bill. But remember, we were in the minority. Um, Democrats were in the minority. And there was only so much you could do. So it really felt like at minimum, we needed to just like stand up for our, you know, our values um, and, and say no as loudly as we can and not sort of sit by. And what we try to do too at that time was really sort of tell the stories of people who were impacted by the Muslim ban and sort of elevate that. Um, but then after that, I mean, it was just a, a slog and because there was just, you know, issue after issue after issue because we didn't have, we didn't have any political control. Um, thank God for the courts. Right? The courts were able to stop a lot of Donald Trump's, um, but it felt like at minimum, we couldn't just sit back and say, oh, well, we don't have any power, so we're not going to do anything. I think that when I was there, um, we just sort of continue to just push as much as we could, just to not stay silent. Um, and we didn't. Um, we push really, really hard back on everything. Um, but it's hard to like push back when you have no power to actually change anything. Um, so you try to sort of have a um, almost like a resistance movement, you know, um, as much as a powerless resistance movement. And I do think that um, the benefit that that brought was the Democratic Party ended up um, being now, I think, very educated on immigration issues. Um, a Muslim ban, no Muslim ban bill passed very recently um, without question, it wasn't controversial. So I think that what that time did was really sort of lay the groundwork for the Democratic Party to really be 
unified and educated on immigration issues in a way that perhaps they hadn't before and they sort of needed to under Trump. So are you at any point leveraging or pointing to like your personal story as part of that education process? No, no, you don't get personal when you're on the Hill. Yeah, I, I figured, <laughs> not that, so. yeah, I figured that was probably <laughs> the answer, but I have no idea. No, no, you don't, you don't get, I mean, you do with your colleagues, right? Yeah. And, but not, not when you're um, kind of on trying the front to push. Line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. So then, you know, I, I, was that everything that you've kind of explained to us in terms of like your fascination with your father's story and, you know, you being so impactful in the area of immigration law, um, I think that, you know, it's pretty easy to kind of like put two and two together, but I would love to hear a little bit more about what that journey was like for you personally in terms of like your thought process. Um, what led you to the field of immigration law just from the get-go? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty straightforward in that it was, um, it was September 11th. You know, I was, it was my gap year. I'd taken a year off in between um, college and law school to figure out if I wanted to go to law school. I was debating between going to law school, getting a PhD. Um, I thought I would be a professor at some point. Um, and um, September 11th happened and I really saw how, um, like I said, immigration laws were used um, to deny people due process and to have mass deportations and mass expulsions. And so I just started learning a lot about it and felt like it was the civil rights issue that I needed to be involved in for my community and for people who look like me. Um, and then what was interesting about that, so it's, that's it's been 20 years, um, is that you know I initially got into it um, to defend my community and since learning how um, you know, awful the immigration law is applied to people of all communities sort of like only fueled my, my fire more. And I've been doing it sort of ever since then. But 9-11 was really the instigating um, factor. And it's interesting because there's a whole sort of cohort of, of immigration lawyers of South Asian origin. All of us um, sort of got involved around 9-11 and it's, we're all sort of of a similar age. Um, and, and, and it's one reason why when you see people who are quite prominent of South Asian origin working in immigration. It's like, they're, we're usually around the same age. Usually sort of a lot of us were motivated by 9-11. Did you ever experience anything personally just being of South Asian descent in the South? Um, uh, yeah, that's my so story, I, you know, South yeah, Asian yeah. descent in the South. Yeah, interesting. So um, growing up, not so much. It was more curiosity. Um, there's a really wonderful movie that I don't know if folks have seen that I just love so much. Um, Mississippi Masala? No, oh. <laughs> that's funny. Sorry. That's a funny Sorry. guy too. Everyone, everyone always says like, oh, everyone's always like, oh, your life is just like Mississippi Masala. And I'm like, kind of, uh, without the Denzel. I don't have Denzel in my life. Um, but um no, uh, how am I blanking on the movie? Uh, Arkansas, oh, gosh, blanking on the movie, Korean. Anyway, um, it's gonna it's gonna kill me. Anyway, so there was a really great movie that came out that was nominated for an Oscar last year about a Korean farming community um, mm-hmm. in Arkansas, and it was all in Korean, and I, it's one of my favorite movies. Anyway, there's a scene in there where there's like a little white girl who's just like looking at this Korean child with like just curiosity, like you know, who are you? What are you? Can you say something in Korean? 
that was probably more of my experience as a growing up. Um, Southern Louisiana um, is actually like fairly um, Minari. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love Minari so much. And I was just like, I just was on the tip of my tongue. Thank you so much, Minari. So amazing. Um, Minari was, was very, that, that really sort of touched me because it, I, it didn't vilify the white Southerners as much as it just showed sort of the, their curiosity. That was more my experience. Um, I will say that shifted a little bit in college and I shifted a little bit after 9-11 and for my mm -hmm. folks as well. Um, I will say, so I was actually in Washington, D.C. during 9-11 and I experienced probably more experience, more, more um, sort of hate in Washington, D.C. in the year I lived here after 9-11 than I did my entire childhood in Louisiana. Um, and this, and interestingly enough, it wasn't just hate from white people. It was, it was hate from, from people of all races, people of color as well. Um, it, in that moment, I sort of felt, I had felt so American my whole life. And then in that one moment, one day, I was all of a sudden not American to the people who were looking at me. Um, so it's interesting because I think that there are a lot of people who have like, a divide racism, I think, based on the Mason-Dixon line. Like there's no racism in the North and there is racism in the South. And I think that like the racism is everywhere and it has just different forms. Um, and that was just my experience. So um, not to make this about me, but I have to share like, you know, a movie reference with you. Um, and this is gonna date me, but I, I can't remember how old I was, but I was quite young and growing up in Texas, you know, being, you know, of South Asian descent, a movie came out called Not Without My Daughter. Oh, I, is it, well, I thought that was Lebanese. It was, I don't remember. I, don't know. I just know it was about like, um, yeah. you know, I think Sally Field and having to like escape from her like husband with her daughter yeah. or something like that. And that movie became like the bane of my existence because everybody just assumed that I had been like kidnapped by like my parents or something like that. And so they used to love to bring that up when I was growing up. So yeah. My, Thanks. the movie that they brought up the movie they brought up with me was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And they would, and the conversation would go something like this. Would it be like, do you, do you eat monkey brains? Yeah. No, no, I'm a vegetarian, but do you eat monkey brains? No, I'm a vegetarian, but do you eat monkey brains? <laughs> Just me. That was the, that movie was the bane. And I can totally date myself with that movie as well. And then like, it was quiet and then like Slumdog Millionaire came out and then all of a sudden, like, <laughs> again. yeah, yeah, same story. Um, but so, you know, kind of like getting back to, you know, just overall your story and your experiences. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation with you was because there are so many really interesting things in terms of you, your identity. Um, you know, you are a female in the legal profession you are born and raised in the United States, but you are a child of refugees, not just a child of immigrants, but like a child of refugees. Um, you know, navigating through the legal profession and then achieving success, there has to be some sort of like intersectionality of all of that, you know? What was your experience in terms of an impact, be it negative or positive, or was there even an impact? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, so I graduated, I can totally just date myself. You can look at me up yeah, too, okay. but I graduated, I graduated from law school in 2005. And um, I think the, uh, one of the things I think was like the most shocking was, you know, racism. I was, 
sort of aware of and prepared for. I was I was surprised by the level of misogyny in the legal community um, that you experience. And um, and I'll give you like a really good example. Um, so I was a detention lawyer. I worked um, in Harlingen for two years under the Bush administration representing immigrants at um, the Port Isabel Detention Center, which is a facility that's like sort of infamous for holding a lot of the parents that were separated. Um, and, I, I, and I was in court and I was making a legal argument that my client wasn't removable and the judge was just being really hard on me. And he was just being really hard on me and really awful. Um, and I was like, you know, you know, tenacious and making my legal argument and I finished. And then afterwards I went out and all of these male lawyers came to me and they said, oh man, like he's never done that to us. Like, man, he wow. was really hard on you. And, um, it was this light bulb moment for me because I was like, oh crap, I'm treated differently because I'm a woman. <laughs> and I know that sounds so naive now in the, in the wake of me too and all of this, but I just began, you know, head down, work harder than everybody else. Just thought that if I was smart enough and articulate enough, and if I made my argument that the fact that I was a woman wouldn't come into play. And that was like a real light bulb moment. And it took a man, men, several men coming up to me to realize that, oh, wait, like, you know, this is what I'm going to have to deal with. Um, and, you know, so I, my, I, what I wish was, uh, if I had to go back in time, I wish that there would have been, my, my law school career would have prepared me more um, for the realities. Because I think that the shock of that was was hard and and when it happened when it's happened subsequently it's always a little bit of a like this kind of moment like wait 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 is this this happen is this happening <laughs> and then it takes a while and i wish that we would have armed women more to know like hey there is misogyny in the legal community and um just prepare yourself for it or like you know but I think I think the timing also has to be acknowledged because, you know, I, you know, you and I are kind of on similar timelines here. And when we were in law school, we were still very much in the subsequent shadow of September 11th. So at that point, you're simply seeking acceptance as an American, even though this is the only country that you've ever known. Um, so just race and ethnicity and religious beliefs was such a huge issue that I don't remember my mind even going towards like how I was being treated as a female and on the rare occasion that it did it was just like there's way too many battles to fight to even have to worry about this like if there's anything that I have to kind of like deal with I guess I'm just gonna have to deal with that because everything else you know is already kind of like seemingly insurmountable so I, I you know I would imagine that even if there was some sort of like, you know, training or preparation, you would have had so many other challenges facing you yeah, at the and time. I, and I think that's true. And I will say like subsequently, you know, I've had lots of conversations with, you know, black women of color, Latin women of color, and there are, you know, fill in the blank stereotypes based on whatever race and gender you are, right? For sure, mm -hmm. uh, whatever, um, you know, like, whatever your racial sort of preference stereotype is, like whether, you know, you think, oh, a South Asian women should be timid or, you know, whatever that is, right? Like, I, I don't I don't know all the very, the various panoplies of, of 
people's biases. Um, but I think that, you know, I think, I think it's true, right? Like a lot of my black friends will talk about, you know, not being too aggressive, right? In the workplace. And that's a different issue. Um, and so I think, I think, yeah, I think I, 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 it's so much better now that we can even have this conversation, yeah. to be honest with you, like in a firm setting, in a professional setting, and that we can, that I, it's so much progress um, I, that I'm sort of jealous of because <laughs> I wish that I would have had these conversations because then you don't feel so crazy at least, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's really, really important to kind of point out that these conversations, the way that the narrative has evolved, um, there's still a lot to do and improve, but just the way the conversation has evolved, like I would have never in a million years thought that people would actually be acknowledging some of these issues It almost felt like you were forced to just have to deal with it in silence. Um, so I think that that's actually very um, encouraging in terms of like how this is you know, gonna impact the next generation. Um, so then I guess, how did you deal with it? I mean, you're, you're, you're having your light bulb in and you're <laughs> realizing that you're being treated differently. What are you you're, doing asking me, you're asking me what the solution is. <laughs> I, I don't think there is a solution, but how are you kind of going um, past that? You know, I, um, it's a really, it's a really, really good question. Um, uh, I am, my, my MO generally has been just to, because again, you know, put your head down, you work really hard, <clears throat> is to just be super tenacious and keep going and not let it get to you. That, that, that's what I have done. I'll be honest with you. What I should have done, uh, so it's two different things. What I've done is just sort of like not let it get to me and just forge ahead. Um, what I should have done and what I, what I have started to do recently is um, seek um, sort of the companionship of, of similar, similarly situated women um, who we can sort of talk, so I can talk these th things through with, not people that are necessarily in my same work environment, but people who have, who are of like sort of space similar situations. I think that one of the things I've realized since, um, since starting my career is that um, there aren't very many, um, there aren't a lot of women ahead of me who are older than me who've done it because of the patterns of migration in the United States, South Asian women, Asian women are still um, maybe, a, you know, 10 years ahead of me, people, women who, lawyers who've made it, who've been successful, but not very, there aren't like, you know, 60 year old women, right. That I can talk to and be like, how yeah. did you deal with it? Tell yeah. me your ways. What are, yeah. and who, how do you mentor me? So, so two things I've done. One is I've sought the companionship of, of similarly situated women who are about like, you know, five to 10 years um, around my age. And then the other thing that I've done is I've, I mentor informally a lot of young women, um, a lot. Um, and it's not like, it's not like a formal thing, but I'm always willing to do that because I didn't have that. Yeah. Um, and because I feel like that's sort of the way that we can make progress going forward. Um, but I had a moment when I, when I was on the Hill where I realized I was like, there's not a woman of color in my line of, in my, my chain that's ahead of me that I could go to. Um, and that's really hard. Um, and, and I'll be honest and say the experience of white women is different. Um, and, and so well, I, there were white women ahead of me, ahead of me but it's, it's a different experience. 
So white uh, women have white women have been in power a lot longer. You know, we have Nancy Pelosi is, is the speaker of the house, right? Like there's a lot of, of lineage there. Whereas for, for brown women, there's less so. Sure. So, you know, I want to go back to something that you said about like mentorship, right? And that really speaks to me because um, one of the things that I like to do is when given an opportunity to mentor, tell these young women things that I wish somebody would have said to me, like really, really just like blunt, honest truth. So that's the question that I have for you is like, what is something that you wish someone had told you? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, the first thing I would say is get a therapist. Um, <laughs> it's really important, particularly in this day and age, get a therapist. Okay. And then the other thing I would say is um, when you're in a situation where you think, you know what, you're, you're either perhaps not being treated as you should, or, or you're in a, in a, in a, I would say that the best advice I could say is to take a pause. Um, I find that that's sometimes super hard um, because particularly if somebody, if you're, you're in a moment, right, where you're feeling like, oh, wait, this is, this is a gender thing, this is a gender thing, is, is to take a breath and to take a pause. Um, and I, um, I joke that um, when I've been in those situations, I'm, I'm the person who comes up with a, a comment or a retort like two days later. Um, I, I joke that if I were going to write a memoir, it would be like, it would be called delayed clapback because whenever I'm in a situation <laughs> and someone says something, I'm like five days later, I'm like, this is what I should have said. Um, but I, I think it's important to take a breath and then to, and to, I, I think it's really important to not react in the moment as well. And to, and to assess what your options are. Um, I think that where I, where I feel like young women where I've seen, I'll just be blunt some young women um, getting into trouble is um, reacting too quickly um, sometimes in the moment. And I think that that sometimes you can be smart and strategic and take a breath and take a pause, assess your situations. And you, there's, there's ways to react after the fact. I mean, it's absolutely true that there are times in which the disparate treatment is so great that you will not advance in that particular role because of that circumstance. Is it smart and strategic to point out the difference or is it smart and strategic for you to take a step back and think about where you ideally want to be in that, in that organization or in a North, another organization or somewhere else entirely. And I feel like where I've seen people mess up is they rush so quickly to point out the race and gender stuff without sort of taking a pause to think about what it is you want, the person that's in your way, the person that you think is treating you differently um, is there a way to achieve your goals in a strategic way, or is it not possible? But I think that um, I, I've never been the one to react, to be honest with you, because of my just sort of tendencies. Um, and I, in some ways, I feel like that probably has served my career a bit more because then once the situation is done, I can take a step back, reassess and figure out where, where it is that I wanna go. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not about being, for me, it's not about being vindicated. I don't have that desire to be vindicated. I have a desire to be successful and happy in a way that I, in a, in a life that I create. Um, I, I think every situation is different, right? If there's sexual harassment involved, if there's, you know, um, 
unequal pay involved, if there's like illegal things that are happening because of your race and gender, that's an entirely different thing. If you're owed money that you're not making, like, right. So it's hard to give across the board advice, but I will say that I, I would say that my advice holds even in those situations, um, you know, before you act, consult a lawyer, you know, if there is some sort of illegal thing happening, don't act in the moment to say, I can sue you for this when you don't know if that's in fact the case. Um, I think that like, assessing what your goals are and how to achieve them is really critically important. So then on the one hand, you've got, you know, this tenacity. And on the other hand, you've got this ability to kind of like control and or delay a reaction. So how are you taking these skills and translating them during your time on the subcommittee, subcommittee, excuse me, for immigration border security during the Trump administration? Yeah, I will say that that was such an interesting experience because I will say it was really the first time in my entire life where I, I felt like I had any kind of power, right? Like it was really like, I could email anybody and get a response right away. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy, (laughs) you know? Um, And so I was always really proud of the fact that, um, you know, someone who's a daughter of refugees comes from a working class background. I don't have an Ivy League degree, um, all of that. But what I, the biggest asset that I felt that I had um, was that I had worked directly with the community. Um, I'd worked directly with the immigrant community. I'd seen their stories. I'd seen their hardship. And I really carried that with me into the work that I was doing. So it was really, really cool, I will say, to be in a situation where I had, I had power um, um, for the first time in my life. Um, and that, so when the, the hill is very hierarchical um, and your sort of ability to get things done is only goes as far as the reputation of the person that you're working for. Um, and I worked for Zoe Lofgren, who has perhaps one of the most unvarnished reputations on the Hill. She's, you know, wonderful, intelligent, smart, um, and very practical. And so when I walked into a room, I was not just representing myself, I was representing her. That inherently gave me authority and power to push forward an agenda for the immigrant community while I was there. Uh, and I took that responsibility very, very seriously. Um, and I'm very proud of what I was able to do um, on my four and a, during my four and a half years on the Hill. So then what was the motivation for transitioning to private practice? Yeah, um, so a couple of things. Um, family separation was really hard. Um, you know, family separation was really hard And at the time, my mom had a lot of health issues and, um, you know, my family had to fly to go visit my family. And it was sort of the combination of a series of really scary health scares with my mom and the toll of being in the minority um, and and not sort of not having the authority to push an agenda forward. And it just sort of became time. It was just, you know, I, it was interesting. I got to a moment, (laughs) there was a moment, it was was 4 a.m., and I couldn't sleep. And so I was researching um, yoga schools because I wanted to study to be a yoga teacher in Costa Rica. <laughs> and um, I was like, that's when it hit me. I was like, I think, I, I think I'm done. <laughs> I think I'm done on the hill <laughs> because it's 4 a.m. I've been looking at yoga, studying yoga in Costa Rica. In Costa Rica. And, and there, was, there was a moment. And I think that, you know, everybody has that moment where you're like, I've, I've given all that I can and, and it's done now. So how do you, what is your advice to women who feel 
maybe a little mixed up in their heads in terms of like, on the one hand, I feel like maybe it's time. And on the other hand, I don't want to show weakness. By the way, I am not encouraging any of the EIG. <laughs> like none of y'all are done, but like, you know, just but honestly, like in general, sometimes, you know, that's, that's, I think, indicative of a larger issue, which is sometimes, you know, we need to be able to take a day or take a pause or take a break. Yet for us to articulate that, makes us feel like we're admitting to some sort of a weakness. You know, what is that balance? You know, I would, I would hope, I would hope that in this past 18 months with the COVID pandemic, that we're all being a little bit gentler with ourselves, with all the various issues that we're dealing with. And I'm, I'm hoping, um, I will say that I have so much, I, I, I'm so like pleased with the millennial and Gen Z gen generation because they've sort of normalized um, conversations around around mental health and like self-care yeah yeah, yeah. I, this the word self-care kind of I will say as a working mom is hard um, because self-care makes me feel like it's one more thing that I have to do that I don't have time for that I feel guilty that I'm not doing um, but that being said I think that like I think that that you know you know, Michelle Obama came out and said that she had mild depression. And I just, I can't tell you in my, in my friend circle, how affirming that was for all of us. We were like, oh my God, Michelle Obama has mild depression and she admitted to it. So I think that there's a lot of value, again, going back to my prior point about having women who've made it, you know, sort of say these things to sort of make it, normalize it and say, it's okay. So for people to, to you know, to take the time um, you know, I've, I don't know, I've, I've always been, I think, I think it's different when you have kids, right? Um, because when you have kids, you're sort of, um, constantly having to take time for sick kids or this or that. And so it's some, I think, I think it's a little bit easier now. Um, when I, when I've worked on, when I worked on the Hill, um, it was such uh, we worked at, I can't even explain to you how fast the pace was, particularly on the house side. I mean, it's like 120 miles per hour all day long. Um, but what the schedule of the house, at least back then, I think it's changed a little bit now, is that you have moments where you're working really, really hard and you have these recess breaks, right? Where the members are gone and you can take a pause. And so that pace allowed me at the time during those recess breaks to sort of have a slower pace. Um, and so I think that, you know, that, that was, that was what I would, what I would do. Um, I would say again, for people who are not in that situation, I think you just have to assess, you know, what works for you um, strategically. Like if you're, if you're gunning for a big promotion, I'll be honest with you, I, I wouldn't necessarily advertise, right, that you need to take a mental health day if your work is, is slacking or whatever. I would say like, try to find time on the weekends or on the evenings or a day where you have a doctor's appointment and you can like stretch it out a little bit longer. Um, the other thing is, not everyone at work needs to know your business. I'm sorry. Like you don't need to know, right? Um, like you don't have to necessarily tell everybody how you're feeling at every moment. Um, that is something that this generation does. <laughs> Our, that my generation, uh, Gen X, we just bottle it up all inside <laughs> and say everything's okay. And tell no um, one. <laughs> yeah. And to, <laughs> tell nobody yeah. um, but I would say that like I think again I think it 
you, you have to take, you do have to have a time to assess again, like what, what your goals are and how to achieve them. And, and what are things, what are some, some safety valves, like pressure valve releases, like a pressure cooker, you know, you need that valve release. You have to release what the are, pressure somewhere. And you have to create that in order to be able to do the work or exist. Yeah. You know, just Without, in the light and world. Like losing your mind, basically. So you mentioned being a working mom. What have you found to be the hardest part about balancing like a full-time career and being, being a working mom? Uh, society. <laughs> oh, interesting. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying anything that people don't know, but I mean, you know, United States is the only, um, you know, Western country where there's no paid maternity leave. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, it's, it's not just the first year, but I think that um, for all of our talk of family values as, as a country, we don't have policies in place. We leave it up to the private sector to enact policies. Um, and I think that, I, I think it's time for the government to enact policies that are, are family friendly. Um, and I think that's a really key part to keeping working moms in the workplace. I mean, there's, I mean, everyone's read the news, right? So many women have dropped out of the workforce over this past 18 months um, because we've had kids at home full-time and managing, you know, work full-time and kids full-time is, is not sustainable. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that, um, I think that society, like, I mean, I, what, what's been hard is, is living in a country that I think doesn't have good boundaries and, and protections for working parents. It's not very often that we have an opportunity to have these events and hear from people, um, particularly people who have achieved success at your level, seen the things that you've seen, you know, have dealt with the things that you've dealt with. So, you know, what would be your advice for the folks that are listening, you know, both men and women, but particularly for the lady lawyers here at EIG, overcoming certain challenges that I think can be specific to women in the legal profession? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say, uh, I would just sort of, I think, reiterate much of, of what I said before. Um, I'm really I'm honest in saying, I think the number one advice is to, is to have a good therapist. Um, I think it's really critically important um, to sort of your, your mental health and, and going forward. Um, and then I think the other thing I would say is, is really sort of mapping out where you want to be. Um, and I would say that one of my more embarrassing stories that I will share is when I interviewed with Representative Lofgren for the position, she asked me where I saw myself in five years. And I literally was like, oh, no. <laughs> I, was like, I was like I wanted I wanted to be a law professor and that didn't work out and so I was like I don't know and um I got the job anyway I, I don't recommend that you do that um but I, I would say that I I don't necessarily think that you need to know what position you want to have in four years or five years or ten years but you need to know what kind of life you want to lead right like is there like an income level that you want to be at is there a place that you want to live? Is there a, a, an, like hours that you want to keep? Because um, I will say that one thing that it's been sort of the most surprising for me in my career is opportunities have arisen that I didn't even know were possible. Um, and I think by defining sort of the parameters of what it is that you're looking for, what you want your life to look, look like, um, the opportunities um, will present themselves to you and they'll be surprising. Honestly, I never thought I would work on the Hill. 
I never in my million years thought I would work on the Hill. And, and there, and there I was, you know, um, and now like I'm a political strategist, which is crazy to me. Um, but that's turned out what I was really good at. So I, I think the point is, is that I, I wouldn't necessarily be so didactic to say, I have to have this position and this, do this and this. I would say, think more about what are the soft things that you want and open yourself up to those. And then the opportunities will present themselves. Final question, what has been the most satisfying moment on the Hill where you felt oh. that you made a dent regarding an immigration issue? That's such a, such a good question. Um, one of the things that I uh, am most proud of was I really led the charge against immigrant detention and particularly family detention. Um, so when I was on the Hill, President Obama was the president and it was the, my very first day was the day that he announced that he was reopening family detention. Um, and I led the charge uh, in gathering the Democrats to oppose Obama on that. And I'm very proud of that. And there was one moment where um, we had all, I had let, we organized a delegation of Democrats to go down to family detention facilities to meet the families, the women and children in these facilities. And we were inside one of the buildings getting a briefing. And then we walked out into the compound and all of these women had made signs from their bed sheets, from their sheets, wow. and they were all cheering for us um, in this moment. And they were just so happy that their stories were being told. I mean, there were women, there were, I mean, the, the horrors in those facilities um, were, were real and they were just so grateful that we were there to listen to their stories. And um, so that was the moment that I was, I was like, it, it felt like things had come full circle in a lot of ways. You know, I worked in a detention center, then I was like leading the charge to oppose the private prison family detention facility. So that was a moment where I was really proud of the work that I was doing. Well, I think that you should be proud. Um, and with that, I will go ahead and wrap it up. So thank you so much, Monica, first of all, for your contribution, you know, to the area of immigration law and everything that you've done for, you know, immigrants, refugees, people in the community, people who, as you say, look like us. Um, and also thank you so much for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to talk to EIG's Women in the Law Group. Um, that was a wonderful and very inspiring conversation. So on behalf of EIG, thank you. And thank you to everyone who attended. Have a wonderful day. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.